Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another ultra-powered episode of Inspiration Point. I'm Adam. Andrew's not here tonight to record with us because of family stuff, but I do have a guest for the listeners out there. He runs or co-runs a YouTube channel uh, called Sugar Punch Design Works. Uh, on there, he's called ABI, but I know him as Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Chris and I, we've known each other for a long time. We had to, we met in college. Uh, I had started the role-playing club at school. I put out the general announcements to everyone. You remember that video at the base of the uh, of the elevator that had the little advertisements? Yeah, we had those little um, yeah those screens that were on every floor. Yeah, those were really cool. And uh, yeah, there was the little drawing I had made. I thought it was so cool. I had put it together in Photoshop and made a horrible little fireball effect. <laughs> and <laughs> it's real. I used like smudge tool. <laughs> it's gross. Um, but anyway, uh, so I, I can remember you popping into uh, the classroom where we were holding it uh, in that, that trench coat that I remember you from. Yep. And uh, with with your over the shoulder bag and and asking if there was still room, and there was of course plenty. So uh, we've been playing together pretty much ever since, though we had a kind of a break in between, I guess. Yeah, there was sort of a hiatus period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I have, you know, I always enjoy playing with you. I think that when when we're in a game together, I feel like you always try to give a lot to your characters. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. yeah i mean you used to do uh, a lot of sketches and stuff you still do i mean you just posted a a picture of your your latest character in my campaign always yeah yeah and i love seeing those those are those are so well done and you guys gotta check out chris's work uh but speaking of your work let's talk a little bit about sugar punch yeah can you kind of like tell everybody what sugar punch is and um, you know, what your, what your kind of goal with it is and, and your part in it. So <clears throat> Sugar Punch was started between me and my brother. And uh, it began sort of in our, uh, as our first foray into just getting into YouTube video content. We, we, we were sort of trying to dip our hands into everything. We were doing like video reviews, we were doing countdowns, but the, the focus of the channel has always been the same, which is to have a platform to just talk about the stuff we really enjoy in life and just share them with as many people as possible. It started as a sort of anime channel, uh, but I started making videos on my own little editorials that uh, started veering more into the realm of video games and animation. And uh, afterwards, we've, we've it's, be- it's become something of a, of a long-running experiment, this channel. Um, I don't even know what it is anymore, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but I've taken to writing a lot of video essays just about things I think about, things I want to share with people in terms of like how I perceive games, how I interpret art and storytelling, and hopefully uh, to share these perspectives with people who may not see games the way I do and pr- offer a new perspective. I think you really accomplished that goal. Whenever I watch your videos... I tend to feel really educated. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, 
especially if it's something that I care about, like I maybe I notice more in those cases, you know, when I, I can remember watching some of the videos of your brother reviewing like harem anime yeah. and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's not really my jam. I just like to watch it because I know you guys. Um, and I was like, oh, OK, that's neat. But then when you would talk about something that it is a little bit more my speed, like talking about animation and fighting games, because I do like video uh, fighting games um, or talking about D&D, which you've done a, a little bit of yeah. on there. It has been uh, really instructional for me. Like there were there have been a few times where I've been like, oh, I yeah, yeah, that's that's why I don't like it. I could never quite put my finger on it. Like I remember because you, you've talked about like Mortal Kombat and Injustice animation. That's what those, those are some of my favorites. Those are the ones I'm taking to my We're, grave. <laughs> you are infamous <laughs> for those a little bit, you yeah. know. Uh, those are those are some colorful comment sections, but you know, I think you have to take that as a compliment. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. I remember watching it and going, "Why does this look bad to me?" And then you sort of explained it, and I was like, "That's it. That's you know, these are basic principles that I had forgotten about from college that that you remembered." And uh, so I thought those were really great. Uh, and your video about um, Samurai Showdown and talking about how it represented sort of the the spiritual aspect of fighting and the philosophy behind it and how the game was was able to, through its design, emulate that. That was so instructional and inspiring for me. One of my favorite videos, so, actually. Yeah, I thought it was uh, really great. So... You know, some of this is only kind of tangentially related to tabletop role-playing games and the like. But, you know, in what ways, let me ask you, do you feel like uh, these these ideas maybe translate well into how we can play these kinds of games, like, uh, like tabletop role-playing games? Like, how does understanding, you know, the fighting style of a character and how that feels sort of inform your ability to role-play? The funny thing is, um, I feel like ever since I started going diving really, really deep into role playing, um, it's sort of actually given me sort of an appreciation for every other game I play. Yeah, like if you consider like what role, what tabletop role playing started as, and how it eventually became the video game. Like, you can look at any video game and kind of reverse engineer it into a tabletop experience through everything from like from mechanics to narrative tools to what the game does to actually like catch your attention and get you hooked uh, between both uh, like it's art design or story design or even it's interactive design. And I think for me, at least um, it felt like once I started understanding things like initiative and AC and like dice roll attacks. It was like seeing into the matrix for the first time. Oh yeah. You start, you okay. start seeing the building blocks of what make really makes the things I enjoy. Mm-hmm. So once you understand like that, the things you like are based on a like a, a set of like equations and things that could could be in theory done in paper, you begin start things, start to see things like, okay, well, um, this also just comes from my love of just being able to uh, extract meaning from uh, not not just uh, the artistic aspect of games, but also how the mechanical aspect of the game reflects that in, at the same time. Okay, yeah. 
So like, give me an illustration of that, how like mechanics can inform how something feels. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, let's say, um, uh, let, let, let's have a fun little experiment. Uh, I said Great. in my video about Samurai Showdown how the um, the way the game is tooled in terms of its pace and its damage is done so in such a way to make fights feel like <clears throat> to give the tension of like what you would feel in a in a samurai duel, like in a Kurosawa film. Yeah, how, like, yeah, absolutely. You could very easily die in a single stroke. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is informed by, uh, like I said, how much damage you deal, how slow your movement is, and just what the the uh, what the cost of mistakes is in that game. So, if you wanted to do that in a game in a tabletop setting, you'd have to think about similar things. You'd have to think about, okay, what matters the most in this sword fight? How do I make the the tension of nothing happening? feel riveting (laughs) and you think about the feel of that Kurosawa film just you know fighters weighing against each other seeing who strikes first whether the first strike lands and if it doesn't what does the next strike entail because Mm -hmm. and what a player gains to win and gains to lose in the span of a single role so have have there been moments in your role-playing experience where you feel like you've experienced that kind of tension that kind of drama in a combat situation or, or perhaps out of it i th- think this happens during like particularly sticky narrative situations in which it feels like there's nothing but bad decisions to make but you have to pick one <laughs> <laughs> like if you, sure, if, you, yeah. if you remember um uh when when uh, Am- uh amarak decide to take the fall and throw everyone else into the portal and we at least three of us wanted to jump after you (laughs) it was not an easy decision to say we have to leave amarok behind right yeah by the way just for the listeners to understand amarok was my half work that we played in a campaign run by spike who's been on the show before and uh you know paladins gotta do paladin things you gotta (laughs) If you don't sacrifice yourself at least once, what are you even doing? This was, It <laughs> seemed like this is a moment where at least four of us were thinking of making the sacrifice play. Right, yeah. There was, you know, maybe a little bit of, like, roulette kind of looking around the room, like, who's going to do yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Those are those but, moments. Uh, that, I, like, I guess through narrative design <laughs> and through just engineering the situation so that players have to be in this, this, this point, making that decision is part of the design mm. process. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And so you would, you would say that that was like a real positive experience. I mean, even though it was tense, you know, that, um, that the GM was able to set that up was, was impressive and inspiring. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So like, what are, what are some, well, let me back up actually, because let's start at the beginning, you know, in terms of your interest in, in fighting games and in anime, you know, cause I guess role-playing games came later, right? Yeah, Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that enjoy tabletop role-playing games. They also like those things. Um, I sure do. Um, I'm not as into anime as you are, but I have my few titles that I do love that I think are just tremendous. You've made a couple of video game recommendations to me that I've really enjoyed, like the Persona series, which I want to 
ask you about later. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, how did it all start with you getting into sort of uh, anime and games? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say there's they're like they're sort of hand in hand. Games have always been a part of my life since as early as I can remember. Sure. Um, anime was a thing that really started seeping in at around, um, God, how young was I? Nine, 10, 11 even. Mm-hmm. When um, I don't remember what it was. Uh, like we, when, growing up, I didn't have like access to like the, the cable channels. We didn't have like Cartoon Network and we didn't have like um, any particular things. So like, like most children with public access channels, we had to start somewhere, which in my case was like, Sailor Moon and Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Just uh, whatever oh, reruns yeah. of that we could catch because networks had no idea what order these series went in. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> there were some uh, pretty confusing uh, storylines from week to week. He'd get to the end of season two of Sailor Moon and then he'd reboot it back to like middle of season one for no reason. <laughs> um. But things really kind of took a weird turnaround when uh, we discovered somewhere on our public channels uh, at late nights they would run. There was a channel that would run these uh, these pledge drives uh, over the phone, and as part of these pledge drives, they would just marathon like these anime episodes. For, and I didn't even know what the stuff was. So at the tender age of eleven, I was exposed to Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> <laughs> And probably like most people, you know, deluded by by, by my age as it was, you come in for the giant robots, and then by episode 20, you're so flabbergasted and in for such a wild ride that you're not even sure what you ended up watching afterwards. But what really formed, (laughs) what really came the formative, like, experience of my life is getting to the end of that, getting to episode 26 of the original run of Evangelion, was just yeah. this wondrous feeling of holy crap they make shows like this yeah like i didn't know it could be like this yeah at which point we started you know staying up late nights to this pledge drive channel to see what else they threw on and we just got a wonderful variety of shows that we would have never otherwise heard of and we started going to like, the public library to rent anime tapes and DVDs from their shelves. That's that's how it was back in the day. If you didn't have Toonami, you had to go to the library. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of people still do, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's an economically smart decision, you know, to, to do that. I'm surprised you're able to find a lot of anime there, though. So that's that's lucky. Yeah, lucky for us. Um, it also gave us... I would say a more eclectic selection of anime to watch from. Like, you know, there's sort of there's sort of like a starter pack of I would say kids watching anime between the years 1998 to 2002, where mm-hmm. they're like, oh yeah, you know, Dragon Ball, uh, Cowboy Bebop, uh, uh, Rurouni Kenshin, and Samurai X. Anything you'd see on Toonami. But since I didn't have that, I only had what was available in the library, which meant I could probably find a lot stranger choices than you'd find on normal TV. <laughs> right. Yeah. Probably some more obscure, maybe questionable for a kid. Picks. And miraculously, three seasons of the Slayers. Oh, I used to love watching Slayers. I used to 
watch that religiously. And, and hey, that takes us right back to role playing, doesn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, because Slayer is a straight up D and D, pretty much. It was an author's D, the author's D and D game, from what I understood. Was yeah. it? Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I remember an episode where she meets a a, a merchant on the road and she just lays out like her bundle and it's just filled with like gems and art items and magic items that she just is like unloading. I'm like, this is straight out of a role playing game. It absolutely is. (laughs) I, I, I loved it. Uh, uh, Lena inverse was the main character, right? Um, she was great. Um, every chaotic wizard that has ever existed has been just a reflection (laughs) of Lena inverse. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's true. I think that's yeah. true. Uh, really good stuff. Um, okay. So when did we transition into role-playing games? How did you discover that? That came about, I think, honestly, sophomore year in high school. Okay. Like I knew what D and D was beforehand. I just had a sort of vague mm-hmm. impression of like, Oh, it's a game where you, you know, you roll dice and you do the thing. Uh, my friends at the time were also friends with uh, a few uh, seniors from his class that mm-hmm. said, hey, we're putting together a D&D thing. And they were looking for people to join. And he invited me and he said, you know what? I am all for this new experience. I want to experience what this game is actually like. So I did. And I was very, very confused. We were playing like three, uh, D&D 3.0 back in the day. Not even 0. .5, 0. .0, uh, 3.0. Yeah. Um, the way the DM laid this out was that this was intended to be like an extremely, extremely high level game. We start with 16th level characters. Oh my goodness. What a, what a bear to, to, to make that as your first like experience. 16th level characters. Uh, he started with 1 million gold and could purchase any. Oh my God. Wow. And I think his only house rule was that the only thing you could not do was turn invisible because every time you did, you actually just transported yourself to some demon plane. Okay, I guess, Something you know, that's very Lord of the Rings. And somewhere, <laughs> well, I guess some player exploited invisibility so hard, he just swore against it. <laughs> that's that's classic, like early DM stuff yeah. to try. And it w- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ban the thing I don't like, and I'm going to you know, just have some weird gimmick to, to start out yeah, with. Yeah, and it was this, it was just sort of balls out, anything goes 16th level, million gold, just go wild, and not knowing what exactly I was doing, I ended up with, like, this ASMR sorcerer with a plus six Vorpal Sickle. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a first character, you know, <laughs> like some sort of you know, larger than life, like uh, anime protagonist with like a big scythe or something. Uh, heck, one of my first characters I that I played when I when we were in college <laughs> was a sorcerer with a double ended scythe. That's how edgy I yes. was. <laughs> so, I, I I do not say that from a place of judgment. <laughs> it's just so classic, right? So uh, I love it. That's great. And then, but I guess the experience was good enough for you to keep going. Yeah. Um, the weird part is we only, we only had a chance to do this during lunch break at, at school and our lunch break is only an yeah. hour. And as you know, that is not enough time to play a role-playing game for any amount of time. Not really. I'm surprised we managed <laughs> to get anything done. 
Yeah. Uh, at the time we were playing there. Uh, at the, uh, after um, that senior graduated, we didn't get to play much of that game. I think that only lasted like one or two sessions of absolute bewilderment and confusion on my on my part. <laughs> like I, someone, else, someone else in the group decided to pick up the mantle and say, okay, you know what? I'll start a game. We'll all start like, you know, fresh. And we all, we'll all have like, you know, somewhere to go from there. So we sort of took turns just attempting within our hour-long lunch break to put piece something together. Eventually, we sort of sure. uh, whittled down to like a core group of, I want to say, four of us. Mm-hmm. And the four of us, if we could not keep a long game going, in fact, I don't, I think, it, I think it would be years after that point until I actually finally finished a full game of tabletop. Oh, anything. yeah, sure. But during that time, uh, it was really kind of an experimental figure stuff out and just, you know, do whatever kind of phase. We played like a Dragonlance type thing. Um, that's also when my friend introduced me to Vampire the Masquerade. Ah, yes, yes, yes. And, uh, oh, we had a, we had a really short run of Call of Cthulhu that was really fun. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, my friend, uh, from high school, uh, bless his heart, but he introduced me to like a whole realm of games I just simply did not know existed. And oh, I, wow. just, I just, you know, that, that was the hook. I had to have more. I had to know more. Well, bless him indeed. I'm glad that, I'm glad he did that for you. Uh, and you introduced me, I think, to, to World of Darkness and Vampire. I had heard of those things. I hadn't played them until uh, we were in college. And I think you ran Vampire and I had uh, a character that would listen to music and fist fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was pretty cool. And then I ran, I ran a Vampire game that I think you were in. Uh, after that, it was pretty forgettable as a game. But <laughs> the game itself is kind it of in a, a weird state of hiatus. But I, it's on, it's on its way to making a big comeback after some publisher um, publishing like the kerfuffle. Yeah, yeah. I do. I liked how um, simple that system was, and the ability to just pretty much everything was add two skills together, roll tens. Yeah. And this actually, this you know, actually that takes was cool. me back to what I was saying earlier about uh, how you inform different player experiences using mechan- a set of mechanics. You know, you get a, such a different feeling playing World of Darkness than you do playing D&D because your character is so much more vulnerable and likely to die. Yeah, did you find that as a as an enjoyable experience? Like, Because you said you really enjoyed that Call of Cthulhu run. And, it, and it's like even more true there, isn't it? Oh, Call of or Cthulhu about is like, death is probably the best thing that can happen to you. <laughs> call of cthulhu is an interesting experience because i feel like mechanically it really tries to capture what you're supposed to experience from you know from the fiction from the books from what you know of lovecraftian works in which the longer you go the harder it actually is to continue because you are simply prolonging an endless spiral of just despair and madness and you will eventually just lose it. It's just a matter of when, not if. So, and you don't find that as like a demotivating aspect of the game. Like, cause you say that with such like, um, sort of like happiness in your <laughs> voice. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm trying to like figure that out, you know, cause okay. We're, we're in Andrew's curse of Strahd game together. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and I am, I think, well, first of all, he's doing a great job, but it, I can definitely tell that this is like not the kind of feeling I want from, 
from games like this. This is not my bag, right? I want to, I want to fight bad guys. I want to be heroic. I want to feel awesome. Um, but everybody else at that table seems to be just thrilled to bits to be totally powerless. <laughs> it's tough. And I, and I feel like I'm just objectively wrong and I need to like mentally get there. It's an interesting thing that I observe happens in like in lots of forms of media. Uh, I mean, uh, when we were discussing it that night, you even brought up things like horror films and how that um, that kind of translates into the feeling we had when we were playing Curse of Strahd. A lot of times in horror films, you as an audience are made to feel vulnerable. You you are made it, it sets up tension in a way that actually you know stimulates you in a way that, you know, gets your sort of your, your fight or flight response going, even though you're sitting in a couch somewhere just watching a screen. I see. I see. Yeah. And I, yeah, I could see, uh, you know, a certain enjoyment or thrill to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's just that, that uh, particular aspect of like mechanics to tension to experience that like always fascinates me. And it's not always horror also. Um, like, you know, you get the most elation, all, uh, like you said, from being able to just whoop ass and be the cool, badass hero that you envision. That itself is a form of uh, elation. It's just, you know, a different flavor of the same thing. There's Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, it, with uh, horror-type things, and uh, admittedly, I haven't played a lot of uh, World of Darkness that was specifically sort of horror-centered. I think because a lot of us approached it uh, coming out of D&D. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of information from there, but I think that you raise a good point that mechanically that, that some systems simply lend themselves to other narratives better because they're built around that concept. Yeah. Yeah. You know, D and D there's this progression towards sort of a, not even a linear scale of power. Like it's almost exponential, you know, where you're almost overwhelmingly strong. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but uh, World of Darkness, like there's progression, but it's very, um, it's very incremental. It's very gradual, and that even even a character that you take for a while and get to what is considered probably like a higher a higher tier of play is probably still liable to just getting hit by a truck and dying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I guess I can see a little bit of thrill in that. You know, last night in in the game that you guys were playing in, I, I noticed that you guys seem to really be kind of sinking your teeth into the, the fear of the monster that you guys were like really nervous that it was going to get you. Oh yeah. You presented as a problem that mechanically we simply weren't handled to, uh, weren't equipped to handle in a conventional manner. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, if your entire party is going around beating everything with sticks, you suddenly make a stick proof enemy and you just force them to think. (laughs) <laughs> Those so are the I, I, I noticed <laughs> oh okay yeah. well i'll try to keep that in mind <laughs> so you like having that curveball thrown at you it, that that thing where your repeated moves not going to work it's uh that and it's also just um i guess what i'm saying is what i like is a variety and this kind of swings back around to my experience growing up watching all these weird off-kilter anime from i got from the library is, uh, you know, I wasn't just there to watch, you know, the fighting anime. I was there to watch a lot of supernatural anime, a lot of mystery anime, uh, 
which then evolved to like you know a lot of slice of life anime, a lot of you know you know personal drama anime, a lot of romance, and like it really hit me just how many kinds of stories you could tell and how they can all be exciting and gripping. Yeah, I think one of the early recommendations you made to me, like after college, was School Rumble. <laughs> And uh, I remember watching that and my wife and I, you know, she got into it too. And we would just like laugh our butts off at every episode. Uh, I really enjoyed that experience. I, I didn't know that rom-com anime was a thing. I, I thought it was always about swords. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was so ignorant of everything, had no idea what was going on. And uh, that was a really special experience. Yeah, so I really enjoy looking for ways I can interpret that kind of variety in different things, different video games, different role-playing games. Yeah. So do you think that D&D lends itself to that kind of variety, that kind of experience, or do you think that's more of a thing that players have kind of decided to inject into it? Is it because of, like, 5th edition, having, like, bonds and flaws and stuff? Like, what do you think? I think think it really boils down to your relationship to the rules as they are provided to you, how much you're willing to pick and choose what to use to build the experience you're trying to get. Um, like, I would love to either play or run a game that was actually very heavily involved in political intrigue. Okay, yeah. Like, I've been playing a lot of um, Final Fantasy XIV lately. And okay. surprisingly, that story is very heavily steeped in like political intrigue. Interesting. Yeah. And Interesting. even though like there's not a lot you could do as a player to affect the outcome of like all the political things that happen in the game, because ultimately it's an MMO. You can only, you know, click skills and watch cooldowns turn over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, your role in the story becomes more embroiled in this like in in this growing faction trouble that like they now have to consider you a piece on the board as this legendary adventurer who's going around doing things what does it mean for the political landscape of the world that you're doing this has there been a tabletop role-playing game experience that you've had where you felt like you were able to have some of that deep political intrigue I will actually say that was probably the World of Darkness game I played with uh, friends of mine, I want to say close to two, three years ago. Uh, we were playing Hunter the Vigil. I made a video about this. Oh, yeah. You're uh, about Beverly. Uh, right? Yeah. My character began as a sort of uh, political tabloid writer, uh, but like just as a matter of the escalation of events, she basically had to rope together like six disparate. Uh, corporations and factions and find mm. some compromise to make them actually function together as a unit to solve this larger problem that was going to affect all of them if they didn't get their shit together. Gotcha. This, I, I like that. It became this funny thing where like every time we had downtime and characters were sort of building themselves up and trying to get ready for the next uh, big thing. It's like our crafters were out trying building crazy new weapons or new inventions or like our fighters were like in the gym training. My character was going behind everyone's backs and talking to all their bosses. <laughs> yeah. And you found that like really satisfying that ability to, to like sort of play the, the bigger game. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, and, the head game. And it became a game for me, a game became a ladder of like progression in status rather than power to the point You're where right, like yeah. uh, by the end of the game, I, she had basically spun off her own division 
and had her own like mm-hmm. suit of operations and just henchmen and lackey she could call upon. I was basically oh, a factory of my own right. Oh, that's cool. And that was that sounds really satisfying. That's something I'd I'd like to do more of in in D and D. Yeah, yeah. Uh and I think D and D does lend itself to that, except for there's always this expectation of okay, but I am going to fight a big monster, right? And so there's like, I don't know, maybe maybe more of it could be injected, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> no, no, that's a, it's, it is something you sort of have to consider if you were towards what you're building. Like, say, if, if mm-hmm. you were building toward a game that's wrapped more around manipulating pieces on a political board, you may want to, say, cap off that game at 10th level. Oh, okay. Interesting. You know, um, I've run yeah. uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist uh, with my brother and his fiance and our friends, and that is a that's a one. It's a fantastic book. It was probably one of the best modern okay. books they've ever written. Two, it's a crazy fun game, and part oh, of what makes it fun yeah. is that the level scale is one to five. Oh, okay, right. So y- you have to work within limitation. Yeah, you know, that's something that is so challenging for DMs as you get up to those really high levels is okay. How do I, how do I challenge them when they have so many tools in their toolbox? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do love those early levels, uh, kind of for that reason. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I had talked to spike in the past about tiers of play and he had mentioned that, you know, at a certain point in D and D you kind of just go beyond those things. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe 10th level is a good place or somewhere around there to, to kind of say, all right, either we're going to move past politics where now we're dealing with problems that are just beyond that scope, or we're going to finish playing. There is an interesting thought uh, that I was considering that um, it came up just now, actually, when I was thinking about Final Fantasy 14 again, uh, because the way the story, that story takes you is that despite all the fantastic adventures you go on, all the epic monsters you defeat, and all the villains you stop, there's always a point in the story where you realize that there are just certain problems you cannot DPS to death. That's true. You can stop the evil empire from invading, yes, but then what do you do about the displaced refugees? Yeah, that's harder to cast a spell at. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I'm wondering if there would be situations like that that maybe players might find fun or at least intriguing to say that. Uh, Leoman's uh, helpful refugee coordinator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, <laughs> uh, that'd be funny. Um, no, I think that's a really good good point is to always have that. Okay, yeah, but what do you do about this other very vulnerable person or or group of people or this this other situation that yeah, you can't just push the button on your sheet and, and solve the problem. Although I do also enjoy getting to press buttons. Yes, yeah. Um so Okay, I did say I was going to ask you about Persona. <laughs> I I love Persona. I it is it is the type of game I would have never discovered, I would have never heard of or thought about had you not introduced it to me. Um and I played 3 in the beginning when when you first showed it to me on the PS2, uh and then I played 4 and then I played the heck out of 5. Mhm. Um, so you, you definitely won me over as like a convert to, to persona. Um, how would you say persona and 
games like D&D might be related? What kind of lessons can we draw from the Persona series? I think what really um, struck me about Persona yeah. is that it really got me thinking about characters in a different way. Yeah. And like, um, especially with regards to D&D and how people build characters, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure for people who, uh, for even starting players to want to make a character who's interesting. And you, you never want to make a character who's flat and boring and has nothing going for them. Right. But the focus, I think, always tends to go toward, you know, events in their life, things that happen, rather than like the process of who, how you became what you are, things that happen internally. Uh, because what you what we learn from Persona is that what you may what may appear to be a completely ordinary person on the outside probably goes through some turmoil on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. And there's um, a thing I've been saying a lot uh, as I've been discussing uh, different sort of uh, media interpretation with my friends, in which there's a lot to consider about the who rather than the what of what a person is. Mm-hmm. So, okay, explain that to me: the who and not the what. What's the, you know, tell me the difference. Like, um, if you watch a movie and you'd see, you'd see, let's say the average moviegoer walk out of the film after it's done, and they will talk about the things that happened, the sequence of events that occurred. Uh, you know, oh, the hero and the villain fought. Then, you know, this Right, happened. they they tell you the plot. They tell you the plot. But right. almost with very specific exceptions i feel like unless a film is about like thinking about it in character internally few people regard like what the what the characters were motivated by what they were actually going through how they related to the situation happening around them as opposed to just the situation mm-hmm. uh let's say for instance right uh, if you watched i don't know pacific rim okay and you walked out thinking oh man it was so cool you know a bunch of robots fought fun of Jakaiji was great, uh, but if you completely blanked out on the entire development arc that that Bako Mori goes through in the entire film, yeah, I I, I haven't seen it myself, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I I think I can understand that actually because uh, Loki premiered last week. Oh yeah, and and I watched the 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 premiere. Did you watch Loki? Do you are you you're not much of a Marvel guy, are you? I feel like I saw Endgame and decided I've hit the peak. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I, I won't argue with that, but I saw uh, Endgame Loki and premiered. then I saw uh, Spider-Verse and then I thought I was done. <laughs> okay. Spider-Verse is amazing. Yeah. I'm glad that you, that you gave that one a shot. Um, I will say that Loki, I thought was very good. And I saw some uh, video reviewers, like people that are popular on YouTube uh, giving it very kind of negative reviews. And I, and I was listening to their comments and they were talking about the plot, like almost entirely. And I was a little bit surprised at that. I thought, man, you guys should be more insightful for this. It's, it's like you missed the entire point of what the show was trying to say. Cause to me, it was all about the, the character development and, and their motivations and their changes and their emotional states. So Yes, yeah, so I did not see uh, Pacific Rim, but uh, I feel like I kind of get where you're where you're going with that because, like at the end of the day, we're like we don't really care about Infinity Stones, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we care about that Steve got a life, and we care that that Tony, you know, was able to to give a sacrifice. That's meaningful, you know. 
uh, shooting lasers is cool. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's just kind of surprising how often you get those people who walk out of that film thinking, like, you know, God, Star Lord was an idiot. <laughs> Why was he so stupid? We could have solved the problem if he wasn't an idiot. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Because it is like, well, because then there's not a movie, my dude. And also, that's not the point. He's sad he lost his his girlfriend. That's what it that's what it means. You know, it's it's not <laughs> you know, we had a chance for everyone to react to that news, right? It doesn't matter. Because, of course, he was not going to be defeated in that scene, right? Like, oh, my gosh. People are so weird about things like, like, it's a plot hole. It's like, no, dude, they're just trying to, like, tell you about a character. Oh, like, you know what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And uh, this actually takes, we should, um, this reminds me of a thing that I've been talking about a lot with my friends. And I think it's relevant to role playing as well. Especially when it comes to building characters and trying to find out how to really make a character that you can, you know, express and you know, yeah. um, and it's the idea that I feel like nowadays we've entered this sort of realm in which the relationship between the viewer and the and fiction has become this sort of weird thing, where and I feel like I have to blame things like cinema sins and TV tropes. <laughs> Citizens, oh boy! Where it has become such a thing that the viewer is now trying to outsmart the fiction by pointing yeah. out, "Oh, that's a plot hole. Oh, that doesn't make sense. Oh, why would this character do this? Oh, 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 that's a trope. I recognize that trope." And okay, I mean, can you imagine sitting around the table with someone like that? Oh, I, I think I have. I run a Discord. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but like, you know, imagine you're you're running a game as a DM and someone's like pointing out like plot discrepancies constantly. Oh god. You know, you know like you you would just you wouldn't even deal with that, right? Like I don't know how to handle that. Would <laughs> <laughs> well, this doesn't make sense. It's like I know that I make plot holes. I know that sometimes characters do things that don't necessarily make logical sense in a real world, but I'm pleased that my players hand wave it and move on to, cause they know what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, do you, do you feel like you've had players in the past that have like kind of not gotten what it's about and have kind of given you a hard time? I don't know if I've ever experienced that. If only because I've been afraid to try to build that kind of nuance into the game for fear of it going over everyone's head. Oh, I see. Okay. And it's definitely something I do want to start doing uh, when I start when I when I regain the courage to start building my own settings and games again. Do you feel like you have been kind of demotivated or um, you know kind of shocked out of it in some ways? Because I know that you're very skilled at these things. It's really more that like I see the heights I could be hitting and realizing that I can't get there is has sort of left left me looking at the gap. Oh, I see. And why do you, you know, not to make this like a intervention, but I know. like, <laughs> you know, why do you, why do you think there's a gap? You know what? Because I, I don't see any limit to your ability to, to tell an interesting story with interesting characters. Uh, maybe that's just my low key way of trying to get you to run a game, <laughs> but <laughs> I am trying to be supportive. <laughs> no, no, I get it. I get it. In fact, the higher expectations you have of me, the more anxiety I get. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're trash. <laughs> I guess what it means well, is that, like, it's not so much my ability yeah. to tell the story, but more like my ability to give players that experience that I feel. Oh, I when see. When I play something like okay. Persona. Okay. Okay. What is something that that GMs that you've had have yet to kind of give you? I mean, I guess one of the things is really that deep political experience, except for one time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what is what keeps you from being fully engaged at a table? I mean, it's hard to say because I feel like I approach every table differently and not even just every table, every single game, even if it's the same group of players. I try to I want to make a character who to the best of my ability will like gel with the setting as well as express something of my own, as well as gel with the rest of the group, which is a high, extremely high bar to set. You might you might get the impression that I set a lot of high bars for myself. <laughs> well, I, I guess these things are meaningful to you, right? Yeah. And that's, that means it's harder because if it doesn't matter, it's easy to try. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I could see that, but you know, I was looking at your, your videos today on sugar punch and uh, you know, I, not to make it all about numbers, but I mean, you've got, I'm double checking here. So I'm clicking around. Right now, you've got what, uh, 78 and a half thousand subscribers. Holy, we hit 78. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's nothing, you know. I think that that's, uh, I think that's an accomplishment. I mean, absolutely, that's absolutely not for nothing. And I, I am proud of every step I've made along this way and to get where I am now. All the same, though, I'm certain I know I can, I can do better. I'm certain I can maybe get to that point where I can tell that story that is as cool as it is to me to everyone else. Great. Yeah. I, I noticed that. Uh, okay. So you have this uh, set of videos on sugar punch design works called tabletop legends. Yes. And frankly, you don't have enough of these. <laughs> I very much enjoy them. I really enjoy making them too. And I like it, I'm not looking to be like a full-time D&D tuber, but as far as I, I'm concerned, this is my channel. I'll make whatever the hell I want. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and, and role-playing is such a huge part of my life that I figure I may as well share it with everybody. So real quick, what is Tabletop Legends just for the listeners? So Tabletop Legends is uh, a sort of summarized version of the tales of characters from games I've completed. Um, I think I even mentioned along the lines of like, me being an uh, artist for all of my life, like I really enjoy making characters. I really enjoy like thinking of worlds and settings, but I don't have uh, the productive chops to ever make something of my own, but I can play role-playing games and that's just good enough. <laughs> so I guess in order to share those stories, I kind of want I to, to the best of my ability, will summarize them from my character's perspective and tell you the tale of that character. So they're long form D and D stories. Uh, you may have seen a lot of D and D story channels on YouTube. Uh, this is just kind of mine. Yeah, yeah, I really like them. One of them is a character from a game I ran, so I took great pride in that. Um, I did notice that your interpretation of events was a little different than I remembered. Probably um, the hardest and- part about making these is that I have to recall things exactly as they happened, and <laughs> we don't always have a perfect record of those. No, we certainly don't. And I'm sure that some of my recollection isn't necessarily accurate. You know, I know I forget things. 
all the time. And, and I say that not to call out a difference, but to just say like what we experience from these games does seem to be different for every individual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I definitely do want to make more of these. It's a, I think the the largest difficulty to make these uh, scripts is uh, trying to find out how to condense the events of a whole game into, God, maybe 10 minutes or so worth of script, which is more trouble than it sounds like. And then also being able to find enough people to correspond to and figure out if the sequence of events was correct. Sure. You know, uh, I wish I was better at keeping up those group Facebooks. Uh, <laughs> that would be really helpful for, for posterity because there's stuff I try to refer to that I forget. Yeah, that's actually why the first one came out so, as the way it did, because I had a bunch of reference points to come back to. Yeah, that was very helpful. Um, I'd love to so make I hope more, to see though, more yeah. of these. Yeah, I hope to see more. You've got one about Cadenza from, from my homebrew setting. Yeah. You've got one about Beverly from that. World of Darkness game that you talked about. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Angry Turtle Grandpa, which is, by the way, it's just the greatest title. <laughs> I love that. And that's from your adventure in Tomb of Annihilation. That was a character I, love how I it, really enjoyed playing. I didn't expect to like get into the character as much as I did, but like the relationship he built with the rest of the group just kind of unfolded naturally. I just had to be like this extremely surly, tired of everything Turtle Dad, and everyone was my idiot kid. <laughs> yeah i i see I, I i like that i think i think my my internal my internal inspiration for the character anytime i had to role play him is i should i needed to find a sort of sort of internalized fusion of uh of the dad from that 70s show <laughs> and yeah. dr cox sure. from scrubs oh yeah oh dr Those cox two, that's, that's one that's, character that's true uh, uh, that's great <laughs> No, I, I do the same thing. I draw NPCs and characters from from other stuff that I've that I've seen, and I try to channel. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. I think we I think we all do that. I love how that video opens up with a co- totally different character, fully illustrated. This like uh, beautiful centaur character you have, and then she dies because it's Tomb of Annihilation. That's what happened. I rolled up this centaur character. <laughs> I was really excited to play her. I drew this picture. I studied how to draw a horse. To draw her, and then she died. <laughs> I like how you just spattered the whole picture with blood. <laughs> it just, it's, and it just, I think you even have like a record scratch in there or something. It, it, was, it was pretty funny. Yeah. Um. So I, I really enjoyed that. So, okay. Uh, recently, I did a one shot where we did Mythic Odysseys of Theros, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and you did great in that. But, you know, before that, when I was mentioning possibly doing Theros, uh, you said something that kind of struck me. And uh, it was in a, in a positive way, I would say, um, which was, you know, you expressed some displeasure at not getting many opportunities to play in more Asian settings. And um, you are an Asian person. And I just thought you might want to say something about that and kind of mention, you know, what are your, what are your feelings on that? I know that's a big, like kind of U-turn from some of the things we've been talking about, but you know, if I can get a little bit more sincere with you here, you know, you know, how are you feeling about kind of the, the gaming community and how they approach that whole uh, side of the planet in terms of fantasy? It's um, well, this is obviously very relevant to me as a person. 
Uh, yeah. But I feel like I hadn't really had active thoughts about this until, like, I think I could probably still look at my bookshelf and see the thing there. When I was starting out Dungeons & Dragons uh, in high school, and I was going out and I was buying the books, and I think for one of my birthdays that year, my parents got me a uh, 3.0 source book called Oriental Adventures. Right, yeah, and, I remember that book. Yeah, this was a book that was intended to sort of adapt D&D 3.0 settings to the setting of uh, Rokugan from uh, Legend mm-hmm. of the Five Rings. And mm-hmm. I read that book front to back, really didn't understand a lot of the rules of it, but understood that there was this entire setting that, like, God, I wish I could be playing this. Mm-hmm. And it just really never came to a point where I could ever put that game together because 3.5, uh, 3.0 is an unorganized mess of a system. Okay. But also just the fact that no one ever ran it, that kind of game, or had any like interest in running that kind of setting uh, in a way that was like as expansive or as um, in, the, in the way that I envisioned it just from reading this book back and forth. And yeah. it really started getting me thinking about like like my interest in Asian mythology and culture, most of which mm-hmm. come from like, you know, video games, you know. You start playing Dynasty Warriors a bunch, you start realizing, hey, there's a whole history behind this. Now suddenly you're reading Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Yeah. Uh, and like it really kind of struck me growing up as an Asian American that they don't teach you jack about who you are, about who I am, about my side of the of the globe. Hmm. So you, you felt like I was missing from the education you received. Yeah. Like okay. it, it didn't it didn't strike strike me until I started playing a bunch of video games and watching a bunch of anime set in these places that like oh these are these places have like stories to tell and their own set of mythologies and a bunch of interesting lore. Why do we never hear about these unless you actively take like an elective in college to go look for it or something? It's like and there's so much that we could be seeing not just you know in, in our media and in our education, but you know. In our games. I remember first learning about Japanese mythology a little bit when I was in junior high, uh, but it was only the one class. And I think we spent maybe two days on it. And I remember the story of, uh, you'll forgive me. I think it was Izanagi or Izanami. I, I get the two mixed up, but I think the father God essentially. Yes. Um, making Japan by dipping his spear in the ocean. And, and thinking that is awesome. I want to learn more about mythology. And then they're like, anyway, back to America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think my favorite years in uh, learning history in like middle school was like in the first year you learn like world history. You learn about like the cradle of civilization, you know, like Mesopotamia and Babylon and Egypt. And then you go into Rome and Greece and it's all so fascinating. Yeah. But then as soon as you take that boast westward, you never get to hear about anything else. Yeah. Is that just because of where we live? Do you think, or do you, you know, what do you think the apprehension is? Cause I, I have my own ideas, but I want to hear what you think. I mean, I, I don't know what to think about it in terms of like in the educational system, because I mean, I'm not a teacher. I don't know what the priorities on what students, what kids should be learning is. I just mm-hmm. think, you know, people should have more opportunities to learn about these corners of the world that you know we come from oh yeah absolutely and it's not like it doesn't affect our side of the globe yeah and like you you might think about 
I, I might think about it even now that like, you know, I don't think I would have turned out any better or worse that if I didn't learn anything about like Chinese or Japanese pathology in high school. But now I'm at a point where it's like, I want to play games and I can't find that either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's got to be really frustrating because there, there is so much good stuff there. It's not like there's no culture yeah. to draw from. Um, I'm sitting here looking you know, at this Oriental Adventures book, just thinking, why can't I play this game? Yeah, absolutely. And did you didn't find, did you find anything lacking about Oriental Adventures? Did you feel like it was maybe too simplistic of a representation or were you just like, I don't care. Like, give me, give me anything resembling this. Well, um, I don't know about that particular rule book, but the more I started reading about like the Legend of Five Rings setting, uh-huh. And, and and the more I started looking to like the actual tabletop system that has its own rules, uh-huh. it's like that really gets me into the feeling of like okay, this, this I you can you can be like you can have like your a Chinese wuxia story, you could have like a, a Kurosawa samurai film, you could have right, you could have a big clan battle war story, you could have all of that in this setting. I guess what I'm saying right. is I wish Legend of Five Rings were more mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. But all the same, and like, you know, there are, I, I had to dig in to see how many actual books there were on, like, the area of Karatur in Forgotten Realms, because that's where the sort of Asia analog is. And it's like, we haven't had a book about Karatur since, like, 1997 or something. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know when, um, you know, we, there's that meme about the Forgotten Realms. Right. Yeah. And and then there's this little circle of the north and the sword coast and it says the remembered realm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Like it's not even just that part of it. It's like most of it isn't explored. And it's like, why is that? That's very strange. Like the fact that we even um, have two of annihilation ghosts to Schultz is like almost a miracle if it wasn't based on an old module that everyone remembers. So I think I could rightfully accuse you of injecting your own vibe into those settings anyway, right? Like even my own homebrew setting, sometimes you try to get kind of that, um, not to equate Asian culture with anime, but your characters definitely have a certain vibe to them. And uh, not in all cases, but I I think like, for instance, Cadenza to me had a very uh, Eastern vibe to her. I think that's fair to say. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like, what, how do you, uh, I guess, it, it, could I ask, is that born out of that frustration to like, that you don't get to experience this, like that legend of five rings feel that you've been looking for? And how do you bring that vibe with you? Like if, if you have someone who likes anime, but doesn't know much about D and D, like how they can get that feeling across, I guess that's like three questions, but do your best. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay well let's um let's start on step one uh okay i think the feeling i get when i make characters for these games is i want to think about what i can express through uh i mean uh through their character mechanic wise and roleplay wise what i want like what what this character's being is and what matter of time i have uh, to, to actually play them uh, Cadenza was an interesting case because she was all about the arts and what the arts meant to her. And I thought, I, when I tell this story, a lot of people assume she's a bard, but she's not. <laughs> she's a blade singer. 
Right. Yes. And like, you'd think that this was a kind of this kind of story, you know, um, relegated to a bard type character, but no, uh, it was um, important for Cadenza to express herself in that way because she came from a background of like intellect and academia, but felt that there, you know, her, her calling maybe somewhere else that her, the, the, what she wanted to express to the world was something that couldn't be like something as rigid as, as wizardry. Yeah. Um, and that a lot of things I think about in terms of like when I build characters is uh, how, what kind of hero I want them to be, what they are expressing mm. about themselves through their heroics. Um, which is why I probably end up tending toward a lot of like non-strength based characters because like I, there, there's I, I, I alongside anime and alongside video games, I also grew up watching a lot of Kung Fu. Oh, sure. Yeah. And one of the coolest things about uh, martial arts is seeing the idea that it's not necessarily who has the strongest muscle power or the biggest body who wins. Right. It could be a matter of, you know, you gain power through discipline. It's a matter of mm-hmm. power through either like even determination. You gain power through cleverness. You know, all these different ways to 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 express power. You know, even yeah. something like you can express power through elegance and grace, even. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's those kind of expressions that I want to be able to bring out of my characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so charisma, dexterity, these are stats that I often see you kind of leaning into. Uh, and as much as I enjoyed your barbarian character that you were playing, you, you seemed dissatisfied with it. Oh, um, there was a point where I felt like I was kind of bumping into, like, I guess I felt like I'd hit a ceiling with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, that obviously did not turn out to be the case as she went through some very dramatic changes over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really like that character a lot and I had plenty more to go to, to give her. <laughs> I, I like uh, her too. But, uh, good, good, good. But yeah, I have noticed that a lot of your characters are more dexterous, more skillful. And I agree with that. You know, like there is that I want to be strong through other means that aren't strength right i want that power through grace through discipline i i love those ideas i hate to just sit here and just repeat back what you said and agree with it but um it does resonate with me on on some level and i can see what you mean when when you draw that out so i've been working on a setting uh that i hope to you know have you in eventually and uh, i've been hitting you up for a lot of information about these things and asking you like a billion questions about uh, particularly Japanese lore. Uh, and you've been incredibly helpful about that. And I, I hope that you'll kind of help me um, on the straight and narrow, <laughs> you might say. Oh, yeah. To, you know, in terms of bringing a sense of, of legitimacy to this thing, because uh, I am not Asian. <laughs> and uh, I think I need your perspective. There is always the worry, of course, that like when you want to bring these things out, when you want to sort of represent that side of the world and that side of history that you might be appropriating. Yeah. And that is something I worry about. Right. And, and I think that creates some hesitation uh, for, for those of us that aren't experts in navigating the political landscape, you know, like, okay, if I do this, am am I going to be called racist or am I going to be called insensitive? What happens uh, when I have to give a character like a Chinese accent? What do I do? You know, 
do I do it? <laughs> First of all, the answer is always no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. Um, I was really nervous. I had it. I had a character who is a, a shoe um, from the forgot forgotten realms. Uh, so S H O U, not not yeah. And uh, I was like, because oh. it, it was it's written into the adventure. You're in that one. Ah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, I hope no one talks to him because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do. And I think that that is part of the apprehension that is out there to to run adventures in that kind of setting is we don't want to offend you. We don't we don't want to um, be seen as reductive or insensitive. And I guess what would your advice be to kind of like approach that thing? Well, um, well, in the simplest sense, there's always, always research. You'll never not have Google available to you or Wikipedia. You know, if you're looking for sources on anything, those resources are readily available. Information's all over the internet. But in a more, I guess, understand the core of it, I think really what it boils down to is to have like a genuine want to like represent what it is you're trying to bring out. Like as long as, you know, you're not just, taking the set dressing and saying, okay, you know, this is it. You know, we're going to put you in, you know, in Master Ching's dojo and start the adventure. As long as you're like, I guess, the, I guess what it really boils on to is that like understanding that there is a history and a mythology and a meaning to these things that you might take for set dressing and understanding that like, if you can have some kind of meaning behind it, if it's related to like the actual history of the mythology, all the better. But just, you know, you don't you don't take them just for nothing. You don't put, you know, you don't, you're not going to take a bunch of people and put them in straw hats and have ninjas jumping around without understanding what that means for your setting or what that meant in history. Okay, so... Otherwise, you get a little simple. <laughs> and I know how you feel about Mortal Kombat. God, I don't even um, get me started on cultural appropriation and Mortal Kombat. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, Mortal... <laughs> or even just the animation quality, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh boy. Uh, invincible fences. Uh, that's what I learned yeah. from watching your videos. Um, so yeah. So I guess one takeaway would be just doing your research because yeah, I definitely want people to feel like I've, that I care about it and that I have done honor to it and, and, and feel strong about it, uh, and not to make it feel like I'm trying to appropriate or to parody, certainly not parody. Yeah. You know, and hey, I encourage more people to do research too. It's really interesting stuff. Japanese yeah. mythology is freaking wild, man. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I've been making monsters based out, out of a, a book that I've been reading. I actually got a, a hardbound book about uh, Japanese folk tales, and I've been just stealing ideas right out of it. <laughs> it's been great. I remember, I think I read a remark somewhere that like reading through like almost the entire saga of like Hindu mythology is basically like reading dragon ball <laughs> <laughs> i need it that's i think that needs to be my next stop maybe <laughs> you know, it's, uh, wild dude yeah i remember going to that asian um art museum that's that was right by the art institute where we went and um and seeing some of the the hindu art there oh, it was really off the chain yeah yeah it was really really crazy um or, you know beautiful stuff i just it was so different from 
what I was used to, I guess is what I I should say. But, Not yeah. crazy, just mm. very, very different. But yeah, I mean, fa- failing that, if, even if you don't have like the hours to sit down to plug behind a Wikipedia article or a website talking about like mythology or history, you could always go the other way and just, you know, immerse yourself in fiction or media that is drawn from it as well. Watch some Kurosawa films. Play Ghost of Tsushima. Um, oh, I love Ghost of Tsushima. It is. I think that's one of the biggest inspirations for me. It's just, a, it's like art the game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. But like, if you, uh, nowadays we do, we actually do have the games out there that are made with this, with the heart and understanding of like, oh, we want to bring out things that are extremely like you know cool about uh about this mythology and culture mm-hmm. okay uh any other thoughts about that uh you know how to how to explore these things uh appropriately uh i guess let yourself be inspired let yourself be amazed you know mm-hmm. you know have have the opportunity to look at these things from a side of the world you didn't know about and see that there's so much cool stuff there yeah there, there certainly is um plethora of stuff to to look at and it's yeah it's it's deep and it it is inspiring i love the the focus on on art and elegance in in almost everything particularly in in japanese art yeah yeah you know this this sense of sort of efficiency you might say there's an interesting thing i noticed about i guess how uh the history of like japanese art in which japan never really had that sort of uh, that sort of Grecian phase, where like Greece just just figured it out, you know, something yeah, just they, happened they and they said we we've hit the peak, we've hit the mastery, we know what is perfect. We and they started sculpting, they started painting it. Everything of Greek art was just was brilliant and perfect and flawless. But because Japan yeah. never had that, they instead had to express themselves through abstraction. Yes. And that, you know, that carried well into the 16th, late 17th century. Just never having that sort of peak of perfection meant that they value art in terms of its more abstract meaning, its more stylistic meaning. Do you think that carries over into the storytelling method, that idea of abstract expression? I think it does. Uh, I think it carries over into their storytelling and... uh, in, in, in a lot of ways, also their music and in a more modern sense, their video games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I can especially see it in, in video games. And that is something I would like to try to capture in a role play setting. Any advice? <laughs> None that'll fit in the rest of this podcast. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are definitely getting to the end there, but I really appreciate uh, your insight and and kind of going there with me and sharing your your passion and and your thoughts about these things. I appreciate you having me here. It's been a trip. Oh, good, good. <laughs> um, is there anything you want to plug or or say or just kind of get off your chest real quick? Last chance. Uh, I mean, we're only what two hundred twenty thousand viewers away from that hundred k. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So where should they find you? Uh, you can find us on, uh, I mean, I, I believe the, the short URL is youtube.com slash sugar punch DW. Mm-hmm. Yeah. DW standing for design works, uh, just to help people out. I highly recommend it. I'm a subscriber. I'm a, I'm a patron. Uh, I 
love your channel and I look forward to when videos come out. Uh, no, thank so. you. Um, but yeah, uh, I'll be, it's, it's, it's pretty much what I'm going to be spending, what I spend most of my time on. Uh, so like, um, video essays are kind of the, what you, what you'd be expecting from, from us in terms of content for a while. I've come, mm-hmm. I've really come to enjoy writing them. Good. Yeah. And I think you are a very good essayist. I feel like I learn a lot. Um, even your Keyblade video. <laughs> I don't know anything, uh, but having you kind of break down how you felt about each of the Keyblades, like I think it, it gave me some insight. I think the video was a mistake, but I'm not going to take it down. <laughs> <laughs> that was that thing was off the wall. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Uh, but I've always, I've almost always been pleasantly surprised, even if it's been a thing I haven't been terribly familiar with. Um, or if you're making fun of my favorite video games like Mass Effect and Dragon Age, <laughs> <laughs> but that's perfectly fine. Um, and we, 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 okay. we badly remember our own favorite games on that show. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, definitely check out, uh, Sugar Punch Design Works. Uh, also, I uh, you'll for, find a good variety of stuff there and you'll find something you won't expect. Cause I don't know what to expect out of my next video. To be honest. <laughs> Indeed. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on Chris and thanks for chatting with me, especially on short notice. Oh, thanks it's for been me. a, it's been a real treat. Same here, same here. Okay. Well, folks, uh, thanks for joining us on inspiration point. Uh, please subscribe, uh, to wherever you found this podcast. Uh, please check us out on uh, patreon.com slash inspiration point. Check us out on Facebook. Um, and of course, you can find this podcast on Patreon or <laughs> inspirationpoint.com slash buzzsprout. Um, and uh, yeah, I am not as good at wrapping this up as Andrew is. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> hard it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> okay. Sorry, one more time. Inspirationpoint.buzzsprout.com. That's the <laughs> URL. Okay. Uh, until next time, folks, stay inspired. Bye. Bye.